It was a Sunday, January the 11th, 1863, when the incredible tedium of blockade duty suddenly lurched into frenzied electricity. Five Federal Navy blockaders off Galveston, Texas, had sighted a three-masted ship, and although it was some 20 miles from the fleet, the five-gun USS Hatteras moved to investigate. At about 100 yards, Lieutenant Commander Homer C. Blake demanded the mystery ship's identity. In response, someone answered, This is Her Britannic Majesty's steamer, Petrel. Unimpressed and suspicious, Blake wanted to board and inspect the vessel, which was his right under international law. To his request, there was an awkward, prolonged silence. When the inspection boat from the Hatteras was only a length away from the ship in question, someone, in the twilight of day, shouted, This is the Confederate State Steamer Alabama. Fire! Thirteen minutes and several Confederate rounds later, the Hatteras sank, with its colors still flying. The episode, a rare ship-to-ship encounter during the American Civil War, and a favorite tactic for the Confederate commerce raider Alabama, whose career has few equals in modern sea warfare. This is its story. The last five letters of history spell story. And that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. As to the so-called American question, which the Alabama and Confederate commerce raiders would call into play, Queen Victoria and Prime Minister Henry John Temple, the Lord Palmerston, proclaimed Great Britain's neutrality in our Civil War, but did give belligerent status to the Confederacy. Though that status was extended, Great Britain could not legally assist the Confederacy. And furthermore, Parliament's Foreign Enlistment Act, passed in 1819, was still in effect. That measure hoped to protect the English government from getting caught up in foreign conflicts through the private activities of its nationals. The law made it illegal for any foreign power to recruit military volunteers within Britain and decreed any British national who enlisted in the armed forces of a foreign belligerent risked the loss of his government's protection. The most interesting measure? Section 7. Its interpretation within the law, crucial, and that's where an enterprising soul proved himself most worthy to the Confederate government. James Dunwoody Bullock was 38 years old, was from a prominent Georgia family, and had been a former naval officer for 14 years. He was handpicked by Confederate cabinet official Judah Benjamin and introduced to Navy Secretary Stephen Mallory. After conversation, Mallory knew he had the perfect man for a delicate assignment. He made Bullock a Confederate Navy agent and sent him to Great Britain in June of 1861. Sworn to secrecy about his mission to enlist British shipmakers to construct ships destined for Confederate service, 
He ached to tell his beloved sister Martha, the wife of a prominent New Yorker, and the mother of a sickly little boy named Theodore, as in Theodore Roosevelt, Jr. Bullock's task was formidable. He was to single-handedly build a navy in secret and from scratch for an unrecognized government that had no credit and was so weak it could not keep its own ports open. Bullock arrived in Liverpool on Tuesday, June 4, 1861, and immediately dove into his work. He found a thriving city of some 440,000. Not only was Liverpool a shipbuilding dynamo, it was the world's largest entry point for cotton, which meant many in the city were quite friendly to southern interests. One of the first things Bullock did was to find a British attorney, one to interpret Britain's Foreign Enlistment Act, and specifically Section 7, which again made it illegal for any British subject to sell any ship or vessel to a foreign belligerent if the said ship was to be used with the intent to cruise or commit hostilities against any foreign state with which Britain was at peace. The key here was that in the 42 years since the act had passed, it had never been tested in court. One barrister in Liverpool, F.S. Hull, gave Bullock exactly what he wanted to hear. Hall maintained that Section 7 dealt with warships, and he believed that for a vessel to be a warship, it had to be equipped with guns. With that interpretation, Hall and Bullock believed that any British shipyard was free to build a warship to be for any belligerent foreign power so long as the ship's guns were not installed. Armed with Hull's spin on Section 7, Bullock negotiated with the British firm of William C. Miller and Sons of Tuxteth in Liverpool and John Laird and Sons, proprietors of the Birkenhead Ironworks for the construction of warships without guns. One American in London was not fooled by all of this. The grandson of John Adams and the son of John Quincy Adams. Charles Francis Adams, who was Mr. Lincoln's official representative to Queen Victoria's government, 54 years old and a dour, humorless Bostonian, Adams was egg-balled and almost always wore a frown of concerned anxiety. Regardless of personality, he was on to the Confederate mischief, and his spies in Liverpool gave him accurate information as to what Bullock and his allies were up to. With that info, Adams peppered Great Britain's Foreign Secretary Lord John Russell with furious notes about ongoing construction of one in Liverpool. He demanded the British government detain or seize the vessel, citing his interpretation of Section 7 of the Foreign Enlistment Act. Yet, Russell was a Southern sympathizer and held the same interpretation that Bullock and his British attorney had established. In short, Russell dragged his bureaucratic feet. Bullock had reached agreement with the Laird brothers again, the proprietors of the Birkenhead Iron Works. This new ship was to be far more ambitious than any before. In fact, the just over dozen commerce raiders that preyed upon Union merchantmen, and no more than five were ever in operation simultaneously, 
This vessel was not only larger than the earlier constructed CSS Florida, but more powerful and more precisely designed for her intended function. Designated number 290, the 290th vessel built by Birkenhead, it was to be 900 tons, 220 feet long, 32 feet abeam, and draw 15 feet of water. Her masts, yellow pine. Rigging, the best Swedish iron wire. A 300-pound horsepower engine would propel her at 10 knots, and with steam and sail, the ship could make 13. It had an apparatus that could condense seawater into fresh and on board a fully equipped machine shop. With full coal bunkers, the ship could sail continuously for 18 days. And if and when it ran out of coal, the propeller could be detached in 15 minutes and lifted into a protective well. Across the ship's wheel, an inscription in French, which when translated read, Heaven helps those who help themselves. The cost of the ship? $250,000. The second of at least six cruisers built by the British was launched Thursday, May 15, 1862. And when done, the 290 became the Enrica. With each day of construction, the U.S. consul in Liverpool, Thomas H. Dudley, and in London, Adams, were well aware of the intrigue. Through spies and others willing to volunteer information, the two continued to investigate and to protest as early as June 23rd. On the 21st, 23rd, and the 25th of July, Adams submitted evidence to the British government, but, thanks to dragging feet and bureaucratic bumbling, the Enrica sailed out of port on Tuesday, July 29th. Like with the earlier orator, which became the CSS Florida, Bullock made elaborate plans to give the impression the ship was simply entertaining as it made its trial runs. He hired and placed ladies in beautiful dresses and distinguished gentlemen on deck. There was catering and even a band. However, at a certain point in the run... All except those required to man the vessel were offloaded and returned to Liverpool. The Enrica was free. Bullock was not the only one busy. A Confederate naval officer by the name of Raphael Sims, who was in the process of returning home from England, was intercepted in Nassau and ordered back to England to take command of this new raider. 52 years old, Sims was born to French Catholic ancestry, September the 27th, 1809, in Charles County, Maryland. Orphaned as a young boy, he was raised by an uncle and aunt in Georgetown. At 16, John Quincy Adams appointed him a midshipman. By the 1840s, he made Mobile, Alabama his home, where he practiced law, but returned to the open seas during the Mexican War when he captained the USS Summers on blockade duty in the Gulf of Mexico. In 1856, he found himself in Washington City, where he served as secretary of the Lighthouse Board. 
He remained in that role until February the 15th, 1861, when he resigned the post and offered his services to the Confederacy. Jefferson Davis sent him north to recruit trained mechanics and purchase military supplies. As to his physical presence, his fierce expression was set off by his most notable feature, a carefully manicured black handlebar mustache. Standing out and up with waxed tips, his crews nicknamed him Old Beeswax, Old Bim, or Marshall Pomp. A loner, he was not big-boned or physically strong, nor flamboyant or aggressive, but he was a stickler for order and cleanliness. In fact, not one of his crew members ever died of disease on a ship he commanded. Upon his arrival, Sims began to recruit officers. Most had served with him before. The most important of those to re-up was First Lieutenant John McIntosh Kell, who once again served as his executive officer. Another catch was the capable British surgeon, David Herbert Llewellyn. To maintain his orchestrated ruse, Bullock chartered the steamer Bahama, to transport Sims and his officers to a rendezvous point in the Azores, where the Enrica and her transport, the Agrippina, would meet. The Agrippina carried the future Confederate cruisers' ordnance, ammunition, stores, and coal. The two rendezvoused Saturday, August the 9th, 1862, and now began the offloading, fueling, and arming. 250 tons of coal was transferred, as well as ammunition and stores. The Confederate Commerce Raider would have eight guns, one large 110-pound rifled Blakely on a pivot forward, one 18-inch smoothbore amidship, and six 32-pounders in broadside. On the 20th of that same month, the arrival of Sims and his officers on the Bahama completed the arrangements. Four days later, the final piece of intrigue occurred. On that Sunday, Sims left his anchorage and in order to be outside neutral waters, sailed a few miles off the coast. At that point, he signed on about 85 seamen who had been recruited by the tireless Bullock. And with a band playing Dixie and salutes, the Enrica formally became the Confederate Commerce Raider Alabama. On average, Sims' crew during the Alabama's career was 120 men and 24 officers. Most, certain to raise eyebrows, were British. As we mentioned earlier, his first officer was Georgian First Lieutenant Kell. Another officer was Captain Beckett K. Howell, whose brother-in-law was Jefferson Davis. Another notable officer was Acting Master Irvin S. Bullock, who was the younger half-brother of James D. Bullock. And there was midshipman Eugene Anderson Maffitt, the son of CSS Florida Captain John Newland Maffitt. Armed, the Confederate cruiser wasted no time seeking her first victim. Right there in the Azores, a favorite feeding ground for whales from spring through September, was an American whaling fleet. On Friday, September the 5th, 1862, the lookout on the Alabama sighted the whaling ship Okmulgee out of Edgerton, Massachusetts. 
Sims followed the widely accepted nautical practice of approaching another vessel disguised. He ran up the Union Jack. It was only after the whaler ran up the stars and stripes that Sims struck his false colors and raised the Confederate ensign. With a dead whale attached to her side, the whaler could not move, much less run. A party of Confederates boarded, removed the captain and his 36 men, and left them adrift, but within easy reach of one of the Azor Islands. Sims then ordered the seizing of the whaler's provisions and set her afire the next morning. It was the first of a busy two weeks. In that span, the Alabama destroyed eight whalers, one schooner, and one supply ship. The distressed crews and passengers were collected by the local U.S. consul who got them back to the States in a chartered vessel. After crippling the whaling fleet off the Azores, the cruiser made its way to the waters off Newfoundland and New England. Once there, the Alabama gutted Union commercial shipping there. There, in 26 days during the month of October, eight vessels were destroyed and three more were released on ransom bond. One of the three was the Tonawanda, aboard 30 women and children. After the capture, Sims wrote, It was not possible to convert the Alabama into a nursery and set the stewards to serving pap to the babies. Although I made it a rule never to bond a ship if I could burn her, I released the Tonawanda on bond. No question, the Alabama and her sister Confederate ships in 1863 created havoc for Union commercial shipping. Insurance rates skyrocketed, and to regain low rates, many U.S. ships transferred their ships to neutral registry, which took quite a chunk out of the huge U.S. merchant fleet. In fact, by the war's end, more than 100 Union commercial ships had switched to neutral flags, and the Alabama hastened that endeavor over the course of those 26 days in October. From the feasting off New England, Sims headed south. Federal authorities thought they caught a break in November when the USS San Jacinto boxed her in at Martinique. In instances like this, a federal vessel might wait till the Confederate cruiser moved outside the three-mile limit into international waters, then strike. The San Jacinto yearned for that opportunity, in large part because the Union warship had double the firepower. However, during a rain squall, Sims doused his lights and under the cover of bad weather escaped to sea. December 1862 found the Alabama in the Caribbean, and on the 7th, she overtook the aerial. The capture of the mail steamer riveted federal attention on Sims and his crew, for that ship was part of Cornelius Vanderbilt's nautical empire. Like the Tonawanda, there were passengers, 500 of the 700 on board, and half of those 500 women and children. Sims released the ship on ransom bond when the Ariel's captain promised to pay the Confederacy $216,000. Now, the Confederate cruiser sailed into the Gulf of Mexico and Galveston, where, as we opened our episode, on January the 11th, the Alabama confronted and sank the USS Hatteras, 
the only U.S. Navy warship sunk by a commerce raider during the entire war. For federal authorities, it was a head-shaking start to 1863. In fact, that year proved to be the heyday for Confederate commerce raiders. For at least three of them, the Alabama, Georgia, and Florida, were all at sea together. The three captured 67 Union vessels, burned 51, and released or bonded the rest. Sims and the Alabama had 14 of that total, and that number came in the first three months of 1863 alone. Those vessels, those numbers, created quite a bit of worry for the 16th president. Lincoln, Secretary of Navy Wells and naval strategist, took a beating from northern ship owners to organize and unleash an aggressive campaign against the Confederate cruisers. Up to this point, they were unable to do much, for that would require taking ships off blockade duty. But as the Navy expanded from 427 ships in December of 1862 to 588 one year later, warships could, on occasion, be spared to give chase or patrol frequented shipping lanes or linger in ports known to harbor Confederate cruisers. Sims and others were quite aware the number of their enemy ships were increasing. But for them, the hunting and thrill of the chase were simply too intoxicating. So in April, old beeswax left the Gulf of Mexico and made his way to a well-known crossroads of international trade routes, Brazil. Using the well-practiced ploy of disguising his ship's identity, he and his crew captured 15 vessels over the next three months. Aware those captures would draw U.S. warships, he made his way for the African coast. On Wednesday, July 29th, the Alabama arrived at Saldanha Bay, some 60 miles northeast of Cape Town, South Africa. There, Sims hoped to nab ships on their return from the East Indies. But after prowling the coast for some time, Sims made the decision to put in to the open port of Cape Town for repairs and provisioning. Word of his expected arrival spread like wildfire, and many of the townspeople gathered atop a hill to watch the well-known raider's arrival. Well, they got to see more than just Alabama's arrival. For as Sims reached a point some five miles outside the entrance to Cape Town's Table Bay, lookouts spotted the Union merchantman, the Sea Bride. One of the spectators, who was the editor of the Cape Argus, wrote... The Alabama fired a gun and brought her to. Like a cat watching and playing with a victimized mouse, Captain Sims permitted the prize to draw off a few yards, and then he pounced upon her. The Alabama first sailed round the Yankee from stem to stern and stern to stem again. The way that fine, saucy, rakish craft was handled was worth riding a hundred miles to sea. She went around the bark like a toy, making a complete circle and leaving an even margin of water between herself and her prize of not more than 20 yards. This done, she sent off a boat with prize crew, took possession in the name of the Confederate States, and sent the bark to sea. The Alabama then made for port. Sims dealt with the sea bride in a manner that stretched but did not snap international law. 
He ordered the prize to sail up the west coast of Africa, where he thought it was possible to do business without tricky entanglements. There, he sold the Union vessel to a less-than-honest buyer from Cape Town, who, realizing that Sims could not give him proper title to the captured ship, paid the Confederate skipper only $16,940 in cash, only a third of her market value. Once into port, the Alabama, Sims, his officer, and crew were fated as celebrities for the next six weeks. Sims and his officers were invited to dinners, interviewed by the press. While there, Sims' officers were on their best behavior. The same cannot be said about the mixed bag crew. After months of being at sea, their actions filled the spectrum from orderly to disorderly behavior. As to the reports of their rowdiness, the Confederate captain was not surprised. Before, his crew had caused problems in Martinique and Jamaica. Quite honestly, except for the officers, the crew was a melting pot of unreliables. In spite of constant drilling, the crew was effective, but certainly not well-oiled. Sailors jumped ship at every port, and replacements were continually rounded up at ports of call and from crews of captured ships. That August, Sims wrote, I have a precious set of rascals on board, faithless in the matter of abiding by their contracts, liars, thieves, and drunkards. Now, if his crew troubled him, what he learned on the 14th of August troubled him far more deeply, for he learned of Lee's defeat at Gettysburg, and the next day, Sims was made aware of Grant's capture of Vicksburg. For six weeks, Cape Town offered the Alabama a most welcome base, but the hunting was so poor that on Thursday, September the 24th, Sims charted a course for the Far East. His path took him across the Indian Ocean, through the Sundra Strait, into the Java and China Seas. In that stretch, he captured and burned six Union merchantmen, bringing his destructive total for the year to 36. When he reached Singapore on December the 21st, he found 22 federal ships in port and believed the Alabama's presence frightened them all to shore. Unable to act while they were in port, he grew restless and sailed westward to the southern tip of India, and then through the Mozambique Channel back to the Cape of Good Hope. Ship and crew arrived back at Cape Town on Sunday, March 20th, 1864. Along the way, the Alabama had only one capture. The lack of action was telling. Morale suffered, and the ship itself began to show the wear and tear of some 20 months at sea. As First Lieutenant Kell noted, her boilers were burned out and her machinery was sadly in want of repairs. She was loose in every joint. Her seams were open and the copper on her bottom was in rolls. Add to that, her beams were splitting, and one can understand why Kell's captain decided to make for England or France for a thorough overhaul. The cruiser sailed for Europe five days later. As they headed north along the Atlantic coast of Africa, two more federal vessels were captured. Crews and passengers were taken on board, and both ships were torched. Despite the captures, Sims reflected on all the discouraging news he gathered about the Confederacy while in Cape Town. He wrote, 
Might it not be that after all our trials and sacrifices, the cause for which we were struggling would be lost? The thought was hard to bear. A note on one of the two captures along the way. On Saturday, April the 23rd, the Rockingham was taken. Its cargo, which had to perfectly symbolize Sam's dark thoughts, was guano. After the crew was taken on board the Alabama, the Union merchant ship was used for gunnery practice. The captain noted that as his guns fired, there were problems with the black powder. Caps and fuses misfired. Only one of every three shells actually burst. And Sims wrote, We are like a crippled hunter limping home from a long chase. On Friday, June 10, 1864, the Alabama reached the Cape of Hague, just off the Normandy coast. There, they picked up a French pilot and dropped anchor off Cherbourg the next day. Sims immediately requested permission to land his prisoners and put his vessel into dry dock. On the Sunday, the 12th, he went to his bunk with a cold and fever. Perhaps it was an omen, for French authorities refused his request for dock space, explaining that the only docks in Cherbourg belonged to the French government and reserved for the French Navy. Permission to use them could only be granted by Napoleon III, who was on holiday and away from Paris. They recommended he take the Alabama to another port where there were private facilities. No matter, Sims was confident that permission would eventually be granted, and so put his 38 prisoners ashore and gave his men run of the town. News of the ship's arrival swept across Europe. Hotels in Cherbourg were packed with fashionable guests, all eager to see the famous Confederate cruiser and perhaps chat with her renowned captain, officers, and crew. And right they should, for since commissioning, the Alabama had sailed 75,000 miles and captured 66 prizes. Of those captured, 52 were burned with their combined appraisal of $4,613,914, almost 20 times the Alabama's actual cost. And who wouldn't want to see or meet the dashing ship's captain who combined with his earlier command of the CSS Sumter and now Alabama had 84 captures. Estimated value of those seizures, anywhere from 4.6 to $6 million. Who wouldn't want to visit with a man who had eluded 25 ships and cost the U.S. government some $7 million? And oh yes, there were others who wanted to visit. On Sunday, June the 12th, the U.S. Minister to France, William L. Drayton, sent a telegram from Paris to the Dutch port of Flushing, where the USS Kearsarge was last reported. Reportedly, the vessel was just off the Dutch coast monitoring two other Confederate cruisers, the Georgia and Rappahannock, both of which had been operating off Calais. Drayton's telegram urged the Kearsarge's captain, John A. Winslow, to hurry to Cherbourg before the Alabama left port. A word or two about Winslow. Paunchy, bald, and going blind in one eye, Winslow's face was framed with a scraggly gruff of graying whiskers. He was 52, 
two years younger than Sims, and born in Wilmington, North Carolina. Though born in the old North State, he was a direct descendant of a Mayflower passenger and educated in New England. That made him an ardent abolitionist. His career in the U.S. Navy began in 1827 when Daniel Webster helped him become a midshipman. He saw duty in the Pacific, Atlantic, and Mediterranean and had been a shipmate of Sims during the Mexican War. His service was rewarded when he was promoted to commander in September 1855. When the Civil War began, he found duty as a captain with the Federal Mississippi Squadron until an injury forced him to retire to Roxbury, Massachusetts, while he recuperated. In December of 1862, he received orders to move to the Azores, where he eventually took command of the Kearsarge. With a complement of just over 160 sailors and officers, the warship was armed with two 11-inch smoothbore Dahlgren guns, four 32-pounders, and one 30-pound Parrot-rifled gun. Back to the developing situation. As soon as Winslow was informed, he fired a gun to recall his crew and quickly got underway. Winslow wanted to make sure that Sims did not elude him as he had done with the Confederate States ship Sumter at Gibraltar some two years before. Important to note, that Winslow made sail with a vessel that was out of a Dutch dry dock only two months earlier, and so raced to the French coast on a warship that was in excellent fighting condition and arrived off Cherbourg on Tuesday, June 14th. The two vessels, almost equal in dimension, but their capabilities most different. We've already noted the Kearsarge had recently been refitted, but the Union vessel's guns were far superior to that of the Alabama. A federal broadside could throw 365 pounds of iron. Alabama could only muster 274, a third less than the Kearsarge. And then remember Sims' observation when they battered the guano-laden Rockingham. Alabama's black powder was fouled, caps and fuses suspect. Only one of every three shells had actually burst. And then there were the crews. 163 superbly drilled Federals to 149 mercenaries of uneven training. As the Federal warship approached the port, Winslow spotted the Confederate cruiser, circled about, and anchored just off the breakwater. The two crews eyeballed one another, and both understood what soon was to come would be combat, up close, broadside to broadside. As soon as Sims sighted the Kearsarge, he took on 100 tons of coal and prepared to give battle. To his cabin, he summoned his chief executive officer and said to Kale, I am going to fight the Kearsarge. What do you think of it? The two discussed their situation. In addition to a lighter broadside, both acknowledged they had unreliable ammunition. Their powder, fuses, and caps were defective. Yet Sims sent a note to the Confederate agent in Cherbourg, and it read, I desire you to say to the U.S. Consul that my intention is to fight the Kearsarge as soon as I can make the necessary arrangements. I beg she will not depart before I am ready to go out. Winslow received that message and immediately suspected a trick and prepared for one. 
Sims countered by correctly guessing that Winslow communicated to other federal ships in the area, most notably the USS St. Louis, which was reported near Lisbon. On Saturday the 18th, Sims sent a Confederate agent on shore his valuables, a collection of ship's chronometers taken from his shipping victims, 4,700 gold sovereigns, payroll, and the ransom bonds of 10 ships that he had released. He informed the French authorities that he would fight the next day and then went to Mass. Though he had several invitations to have dinner with admirers, the Confederate captain returned to his ship early in the evening and went straight to bed. Meanwhile, some of the officers attended farewell parties in Cherbourg, and crew members were told to make wills. The next morning, a Sunday, bright, clear, cool. At 9 a.m. of that 19th of June, Sims called the Confederate crew together and addressed them. Officers and seamen of the Alabama, you have at length another opportunity of meeting the enemy, the first that has been presented to you since you sank the Hatteras. In the meantime, you have been all over the world, and it is not too much to say that you have destroyed and driven for protection under neutral flags one half of the enemy's commerce, which at the beginning of the war covered every sea. This is an achievement of which you may well be proud, and a grateful country will not be unmindful of it. The name of your ship has become a household word wherever civilization extends. Shall that name be tarnished by defeat? The thing is impossible. Remember that you are in the English Channel, the theater of so much of the naval glory of our race, and that the eyes of all Europe are at this moment upon you. The flag that floats over you is that of a young republic which bids defiance to her enemies wherever and wherever found. Show the world that you know how to uphold it. Go to your quarters. Decks were cleared, trimmed, sand deposited on the deck to rid of the human gore in the coming battle. Sims, in dress uniform, moved to command position just before the mizzenmast and ordered his ship out. As the Alabama left the harbor, an estimated 15,000 lined the shore. Among them, French Impressionist Edouard Manet, who was busy sketching. Following the Alabama, a flotilla of small spectator craft. As they passed a French warship, the Napoleon, the ship's band played Dixie while the shore roared with cheers. Also in the procession, a French ironclad frigate accompanied the Confederate ship to ensure the fight would be outside the three-mile limit. On the Kearsarge, Captain Winslow was reading the Sunday service when a lookout shouted the alarm. Winslow closed his prayer book and ordered beat to quarters. It was now just after 9.30. There was a light wind from the west. Sims wanted to use his starboard guns and so shifted one thirty-two pounder from the port side, which caused the Alabama to list some two feet to her starboard. It was a calculated move. Less of that side would now be exposed. As Alabama neared, the seven-gun Kearsarge headed northeast to draw the southern cruiser farther into international waters. 
When the distance was about one and one quarter miles between the two, Kearsarge turned and headed for her antagonist. Both intended to use their five starboard guns to deliver broadsides. At 10.57 a.m., Alabama fired its first broadside at less than a mile. The missiles all missed high. At about half a mile, Kearsarge opened. The two neared and began to circle one another, a slow pirouette, if you will. Drifting westward in a parallel, what would be seven clockwise circles, Kearsarge, with each turn, closed the distance between the two. Alabama drew first blood when it knocked down three Union sailors who were manning the aft Dahlgren gun. One southern shot from the Alabama actually buried itself into the Kearsarge vital wooden stern post, but it did not explode. Still, four men were now required to move its rudder. No question, Winslow's vessel benefited from draped chain which protected the Kearsarge boilers, engines, and magazine. Alabama had the same type of chains, but opted not to employ them. With each circle, the Kearsarge closed, and as it did, Winslow changed from solid shot to bursting shell. His 11-inch guns, quite effective, as evidenced when the Alabama's aft pivot gun was shot away. Another Union shell penetrated the hull of the Confederate cruiser and exploded in the engine room. That put out the boiler's fires. Water began to pour in far beyond the control of the ship's pumps. On the seventh and final circle, Sims received a slight wound to his right hand. Two ships were by now only 400 yards apart. Chief Executive Officer Kell informed Sims that the Alabama was in trouble. So Sims ordered the, his vessel to turn out and make a break for shore. However, Winslow would not allow it. Kearsarge bore down and began to fire hellish grape shot, littering the deck of the Alabama with dead and wounded. Kell now shouted that the southern cruiser could not last ten minutes more. So Sims ordered the Confederate ensign hauled down. All hands, save yourself, was piped. Winslow expected deception, and so, not seeing a white flag raised, poured in yet another broadside. That brought a white flag. Though surrendered, surviving crew members of the Alabama went over the sides. They had to, for none of Alabama's boats were fit to use, save one. As Manet's artwork of the fight would portray, other vessels rushed in, including the British yacht Deerhound, which picked up many Confederate officers, including the last two to leave the sinking Alabama, Sims and Kell. Sims was told to hide under a tarpaulin, and indeed, when a boat from the Kearsarge rowed up and asked for him, Kell shouted back, He's drowned. The battle was over. Alabama went down stern first at 12.24 p.m., 90 minutes after her first shot. On board the victorious Kearsarge, no one cheered. Instead, an eerie silence. Alabama had fired 370 shots. 30 had been hits. Kearsarge had fired 173. Many had hit home. Winslow's casualties numbered three, one of the wounded mortally. There were 43 casualties on the Alabama, about half killed or drowned. 
In the chaotic aftermath, Winslow took six Alabama officers and 64 men. He paroled every one of them when they reached the port of Cherbourg. On the Deerhound, Sims and Kell were taken to Southampton, where the British refused to turn them over to U.S. authorities. There, Sims paid off his surviving crew and sent allotments to the kin of those killed. Though defeated in Great Britain, he and his ship were lionized, just as was Winslow and his vessel in Cherbourg. As the crew of the Kearsarge moved on to new responsibilities, Sims stayed on in Europe and visited Belgium, the battlefield site of Waterloo and Switzerland. On October the 3rd, he headed west for Havana via St. Thomas. He re-entered the dying Confederacy from Mexico and made his way from Brownsville, Texas to Richmond. There, he was promoted to Rear Admiral in February 1865 and given command of eight ironclads and gunboats that made up the Confederate James River Squadron. On Sunday night, April the 2nd, 1865, with Petersburg overrun and Richmond lost, he gave orders to destroy his own squadron. Without a ship or fleet, he accompanied Jefferson Davis in his flight from the Confederate capital. This time, as a newly commissioned brigadier general in command of a naval brigade. That phenomenon made him the only North American to ever hold both ranks, rear admiral and brigadier general, simultaneously. He surrendered to federal authorities on May the 1st, 1865 in Greensboro, North Carolina. Back in Mobile, he was arrested taken to Washington City, and indicted for piracy. But after spending four months in prison, he was released and reinstated on parole by order of President Andrew Johnson. Now a citizen, he taught moral philosophy and English literature at Louisiana State Seminary, served as editor of the Memphis Daily Bulletin, practiced law, and went on to the lecture circuit. In 1869, he completed his memoirs of service afloat during the war between the states. After a most colorful and eventful life, he passed August the 30th, 1877. He was laid to rest in Mobile. In contrast, Winslow received a vote of thanks from Congress and was promoted to Commodore. That being said, Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells never forgave him for paroling Confederate prisoners in Cherbourg and for allowing Sims to escape. The sighting of the Alabama signaled the beginning of the end for the Confederacy's commerce raiders. They had been the principal offensive weapon for the Confederate Navy, destroying 257 vessels, or about 5% of the Union merchant marine. Naval historian George Dalzell believed that because of the Confederate cruisers, over half of the U.S. Merchant Marine changed registry. Indeed, 110,000 tons were burned or sank, and some 800,000 tons were sold to foreign owners. And yet, after those staggering numbers, another illustration of the North's industrial might. Confederate commercial raider success did not have any measurable effect on the Union blockade or on overall Union maritime trade. The Confederate raiders' main contribution? Well, 
Their victories and use bolstered Confederate morale and enhanced and enlarged the stories of adventure on the high seas. After the war, Charles Sumner, the Senate Chair on the Committee on Foreign Relations, stated that Great Britain, for aiding the Confederacy, owed half the North's war cost, $2.5 billion, and proposed taking British possessions in the Western Hemisphere as compensation. Great Britain, of course, was incredulous. There was an 1868 compromise agreement signed by an Anglo-American group, but the U.S. Congress overwhelmingly voted it down, since the Alabama's damages were excluded. Then events in Europe aided the United States. First, the Germans defeated France in the Franco-Prussian War, and in 1871, Bismarck declared a German empire. Threatened on the continent, Great Britain wanted U.S. security. As a result, when Secretary of State William Seward sought damages in the form of the so-called Alabama claims, Uncle Sam now had some leverage. Seward sought a payment of over $19 million for damage done by 11 Confederate cruisers. The bulk of that amount came from three over $6.5 million by Sims, Alabama, close to $6.5 million by James Iredell Waddell Shenandoah, and just over $3.5 million by John Newland Maffitt and Charles M. Morris's Florida. An 1871 Treaty of Washington put the claim to arbitration. With one delegate each from the United States, Great Britain, Italy, Brazil, and Switzerland. They met in Geneva, December the 15th, 1871, and on September the 14th, 1872. From those two meetings, the arbitrators awarded the United States $15,500,000 in gold. Fast forward to November the 7th, 1984. On that Wednesday, the French minesweeper Cersei found the Confederate commerce raider Alabama in slightly less than 200 feet of water, about six miles off the coast of France in what is now territorial waters. When found, Great Britain wanted the wreck to be returned to Birkenhead, where the ship was built and where the number four dockyard is preserved as an historical site by the British government. The French maintained that they found her, and the action that sank her occurred off the French coast. And, in 1989, Congress passed the CSS Alabama Preservation Act. It wanted the wreck, too. On October the 3rd in that year, 1989, the United States and France signed an agreement that recognized the CSS Alabama as an important heritage resource of both nations and established a joint French-American Scientific Committee to oversee archaeological investigation of the wreck. Ratification of the agreement established a precedent for international cooperation as it applied to archaeological research, as well as the protection of unique historic shipwrecks. In addition to seven cannon, the wreck site contained shot, gun truck wheels, brass tracks for the gun carriages. Two shot were recovered, and one conical projectile was inside the barrel of the seven-inch Blakely rifle. 
A shell for a 32-pounder was recovered from the stern, forward of the propeller. Additional round shot were observed scattered forward of the boilers and in the vicinity of the aft pivot gun, one possibly having been fired from the Kearsarge. Research of documenting the wreck continued even into the 21st century. In fact, in 2002, a diving expedition raised the ship's bell, along with more than 300 other artifacts, including more cannon, structural samples, tableware, ornate commodes, and numerous other items that reveal much about life aboard the Confederate warship. Many of the artifacts are now housed in the Underwater Archaeology Branch, Naval History and Heritage Command Conservation Lab. All this continued activity and interest from the activity of a British-built Confederate commercial raider, which was the terror of the Union Merchant Marine some 160 years ago. Most believe U.S. Grant, a solid general and terrible president. Over the years, some 12,000 published monographs either reinforced that assessment and a few begged to differ. Among the countless works, three of note. His personal memoirs are still considered one of the finest ever written by not only a general, but a U.S. president. The second in 1981, Historian William McFeely won a Pulitzer Prize for his biography on Grant. Incidentally, McFeely's book took Grant to task militarily and politically. The third work we mention comes from the same author who made Alexander Hamilton a household word, Ron Chernow. In his 2017 book, and reinforcing that historiography about individuals seemed to be cyclical, the author defended Grant's military and presidential years. Into the river of prose about the general and chief executive, we, at Threads from the National Tapestry, roll up our collective sleeves and wade in to hopefully inform and entertain. Next up, in commemoration of the 200th anniversary of his birth, the intriguing story of the post-bellum years of Ulysses S. Grant. Once again, all of us at Threads from the National Tapestry are very pleased to announce that another has joined the ranks. A big thank you and an appreciation for your support. Thank you, Dan Fell of Burlington, Iowa. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by Bob Grasser, Raleigh Civil War Roundtable's editor of the Knapsack Newsletter and the Roundtable's webmaster at raleighcwrt.org. That's raleighcwrt.org.